Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where every episode I'll dive deep into the creative minds of your new favorite songwriters, band leaders, and sonic explorers who, like me, have dedicated their lives to traveling the world, telling their strange stories to anyone who'll listen. My name is Zach Lupiton. Let's go. This week on the show, I bring you my talk with acclaimed root songwriter and hard-touring band leader Sarah Shook, who for most of the last decade has been making cut-to-the-bone country music of her own aching outlaw variety, first with her early band The Devil, and now with her seasoned group of sensitive twang-rock shit-kickers, The Disarmers. While there is a tattooed toughness to Sarah's songs that are reminiscent of a rebellious rockabilly Lucinda Williams in her youth, it's Sarah's self-deprecated lived-in confessionals like Fuck Up and New Ways to Fail where Sarah shows her true talent as a master of getting to the point, processing her tough transition to sobriety, motherhood, and an ongoing search for inner peace with grace, humor, and wit. And much like her hero Johnny Cash, who she only heard for the first time as a teenager secluded in a homeschooled religious family, she suffers no fools when it comes to love and its tricky late-night mind-bending detours. With her signature half-smile, half-grimace candor flanked on either side by electric guitar and pedal steel, Shook sings about a smoky world swirling around her like a sharp knife cutting through a many-layered bullshit cake. We all need a friend like Sarah Shook to tell us how things really are. Look, it can feel like we're living in a post-truth world. Can you believe anything you see on TV, anything you hear on the radio? When you turn on country music or watch Fox News, is that really what's happening? But I'll tell you one thing. There's no deep faking Sarah Shook's honesty in her songs. She is going to tell you what's on her mind and tell it to you quick. And since she likes to get right to the point, I'm going to try to do that too this week. Today is the last day to register to vote in many states. And if you're tired of being gaslit every day of your life, vote for a little more truth November 3rd. I'm really happy I was able to catch up with Sarah. This is a really emotional, intense conversation we're about to have. And uh, please stick around to the end of the episode to hear a live-from-home acoustic rendition of her deliciously twangy kiss-off, Good as Gold. I'm going to sign off there, guys. Thanks again for listening. If you can, leave us a review on iTunes, share this show with your friends, and here she is now from the wilds of North Carolina, Sarah Shook. My name is Sarah Shook, and my band is Sarah Shook and the Disarmers. And in pre-pandemic life, I was touring about 150 days a year and doing everything that that entails, uh, all the joys of loading in and sound checking and waiting around for a million hours to actually play one hour worth of music. (laughs) Um, You know, you know the deal. 
What is your preferred set length? I know like some people like to jam out for hours, but I think 75 is like my preferred amount. That is a really good number. I think that that is probably our average. Um, but I, I really like a, a shorter, like one hour long set and then maybe like a two song encore. Yeah, because your songs tend to be in the three minute range. Yeah. Pretty to the point. <laughs> yeah. With your with your lyrics and your choruses. And I feel like it always makes me laugh when I get booked on a festival and they're like, Yeah, so we're gonna need you to play for two hours. <laughs> and we're like, Yeah, but that doesn't like work for us. <laughs> like how many times are we going to rock out on a trombone solo here? Yeah. Like, don't you get tired of that? Yeah. I don't think that the average Joe realizes how much strategic planning actually goes into filling out a longer set. And especially if you write songs that are around the three minute mark, you kind of, you know, you've shot yourself in the foot because at that point, you know, you put that in the context of live shows and then you got to really brush up on the old banter skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you find that you're good or bad at making like jokes on the mic in front of audiences? I am terrible at making jokes on the mic. Um, I, there was a time early on in my career where... I just I'm I'm very introverted by nature and so there would be this awkward pause between songs and my bassist would just be looking at me like dude you got to and I'm like I don't I don't know like deer in headlights so over time say I, something yeah yeah it's like say anything please you know Eric's going to be tuning his guitar for another like 5 minutes man um yeah. which you know is is usually the case if we're waiting between songs it's usually some some Eric being very uh very much a perfectionist with his tuning which which can be a good thing but i I've, I've definitely had to teach myself how to how to be better at banter it is not something that came naturally to me i was reading that yeah eric um who's your electric guitar player right yes he was definitely one of the people that convinced you to really do this for real because you kind of had it as, you know, a hobby that you did to let off some steam but would never become a uh, full-time job. And he definitely is one of the people that pushed you forward, right? Absolutely. And at the time that he sent out this message sort of um, – it, it's kind of hard to categorize because I didn't feel like he was, like, chastising anyone – but I felt like he really just wanted to make known what his feelings were about the situation. And his feelings at that time were just like, we are a really good band. We play a ton of live local shows. But like, if y'all aren't going to be ambitious about this, then like, I just need to know so I can adjust my expectations. And he went on to say that um, you know, we've had this studio pursuing us to make a full-length album, and we've dropped the ball on that. We don't have merch. As far as I know, we don't have any plans to tour outside of, like, I don't know, like a three-hour radius. So he just kind of wanted to put out feelers and be like, am I the only one in this band that actually cares about being in a band? <laughs> right. Um, and, I mean, it was kind of shocking to me because I was just sort of, going along with the flow and I was not 
at that time. And I, I'm not now, like, I'm just not ambitious when it comes to music. Like at this point in my life, it's my job and that's cool and everything, but that, that wasn't really what I set out to, like, I didn't, that's not really what I wanted music to be to me. I never wanted music to be about making money. Well, there is a careful what you wish for situation sometimes where I think if you go in with the expectation, like, we're going to take over the world and people are going to respect us and, and buy our stuff. And then it doesn't happen for five, six, ten years, which often is the way it works. Yeah. There's that sort of heartbroken um, feeling that you're failing constantly, even though a hundred people showing up to your shows uh, at, you know, any venue on the East coast is like an accomplishment for most bar bands. If right. Any band, you know, Absolutely. And I, I do try to keep that in mind. Um, you know, that, that there are so many bands that struggle so hard and it's, it's frustrating to me, especially when I hear people or, um, like specifically people in like the, in the press or musicians or artists who have had success sort of talk down about other bands and just be like, yeah, well, they just didn't want it enough or they didn't work hard enough. And it's like so many bands out there absolutely like 110% put in the work and they don't ever see the results. They don't get the, you know, they, they're not like selling out every club they play every night. And that is just sort of the nature of the industry. It's the nature of the beast, you know? Um, and it's, it is frustrating. And I mean, I have a lot of artists that I love that I wouldn't say are on that level of success. Do they deserve to be? Absolutely. But just for one reason or another, it's like, it's just like they don't catch a break. There's a song of yours, uh, solitary confinement off sidelong. It reminds me of something that Patsy Klein would have sang if she were around today and had a little more empowerment behind her. The, The music that I grew up with, uh, my mom playing Patsy Cline in the car all the time. We were always like, is everyone always going to leave her? And is every, <laughs> is anything ever going to happen to her that works out? You know? And your, whereas your character is going like, well, this isn't going to work out, but fuck it all. Yep. You know? <laughs> fuck it. Each time I see you again. Did you listen to Patsy Cline growing up? Well, of course you didn't because you were in a very Christian family. So let's go back. What did you listen to growing up? Uh, I listened to a lot of classical composers. And every Sunday at church service, I heard worship music. My parents were really, really strict about music to the point that, like, even kids at my church would be allowed to listen to what would be considered contemporary Christian or like, you know, Christian rock or Christian pop or whatever. And like my, my parents were just like, you know, if it's got a bass and like drums, it's of the devil. And so, yeah, that was completely off limits. Like, as I, I, I've said before, like jars of clay was too racy for my parents, (laughs) which is just in retrospect is, is nuts. And, um, it's actually really endearing. My uh, my mom apologized to me um, maybe a year or so ago. It was so sweet. She was just like, we just thought, you know, we were just doing the best that we could at the time. And, you know, if we if we felt 
then how we feel now, you know, y'all would have been allowed to do a lot more stuff and listen to a lot more music. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm still playing catch up. I'm still making up for lost time as far as, um, Oh shit. I just realized, I think my metronome has been on this whole time. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. Sure. Wish I could forgive you. As quickly as it seems, you can forget me. All right, so let's go back to your mom uh, growing up in the church, uh, and she, you guys, you know, have been able to talk about it at least, and that's that's more than I think a lot of families who grow up in this very strict place, you know, where they hold on to it forever and, and resent their children from for rebelling. Yeah, in a way, I feel pretty lucky about my sort of relationship with music because um, when I started kind of sneaking music into my house in my late teens, like when I finally got a job and a car and a little bit of independence. Um, I I remember like the first time that I heard music that wasn't classical or like praise or worship music. And it, it was a very singular experience. And I, I think a lot of people don't have that because they just sort of grow up with it. It's just always sort of there. Uh, but for me, it was like total geek out freak moments, just like I've never heard anything that sounds like this in my entire life. Like, what is this? And I and, you know, at that time I was listening to like my sort of introduction to secular music was uh, Bell and Sebastian and Elliot Smith, which like Elliot Smith to this day is one of my like top three favorite songwriters of all time. Um and one of the things that I felt like I really identified with Elliot was his willingness to like be vulnerable about some pretty like heavy shit. And I think that I think that like somehow he knew that people needed to hear that it was okay to go through heavy stuff because it's it's the human experience like like the things that make us feel the most isolated and alone in our lives like depression and anxiety and stuff like that like that's actually like actually common ground right and i think that there's been so many musicians like yourself who broke out of this mold you know maybe they felt different maybe they felt like they saw things uh in a different way than their peers, you know, and they had to write it down. They had to collect these feelings. Like most people, they go to work, they have families and they're okay with that as their whole life. And that's not like how a lot of us work. There's this restlessness and this um, drive that we have to write it down. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that restlessness is a really good word to describe those feelings. Um, and I, I think that in general, I think that it's very human to not really feel any, like to not feel compelled in any way to know yourself better or to examine your motives or, or really be self-aware. And I, I think that that's like also something that's really important for artists, no matter what your medium, like it doesn't even have to be music or writing. Like, I think that, uh, part of that deep drive to create things that goes hand in hand with knowing yourself And, um, because I mean, what is art? Art is an expression of yourself, of the internal world of you. Um, so therefore, like if you, if you want your art to evolve and improve and get better, then you have to evolve and get better as a human being. And you can't do that unless you know yourself. Yeah. And sometimes there's just artists and you know, songs that somehow worm their way into your cells that just feel like like almost a past life connection, you know? Yeah. And you described a moment um, I read online where you heard Johnny Cash for the first time and you had no idea what it was, right? And that, I mean, yep. and especially I think with the way that you present your songs, I can see that connection throughout your albums, you know, that sort of deep honesty and no frills expression, just saying like, okay, I'm going to drink you off my mind. That's the song, you know? Yeah. What was that like hearing Johnny Cash for the first time? It felt like homecoming. It felt like a huge piece of the puzzle just fell into place and, you know, the clouds parted in the beam of sunshine came down it, it was it was so intense and and so awesome um because due to the way that I was raised I there were all of these genres that I had never heard of and explored some more thankfully that I'd never heard of them than others but uh but I had been writing country songs uh like since my mid-teens I just didn't know that that was what they were like um so hearing Johnny Cash was like oh my god this is like a thing that people are doing way better than I have ever done but like this is a thing so now I can like study this and listen to this and um and it it was it was awesome and you were homeschooled right growing up all the way through yep so yeah that that's that's definitely a place of, of isolation, which maybe can be good for creativity. I don't know. But did you find that connecting with other musicians and, and, and people like yourself was more difficult because you'd never sort of been out in the world? Um, it, it's kind of twofold. I think that uh, being homeschooled, in, in my case, was very isolating. I, I know of people that were homeschooled that had a very different experience than I did. Um, but, I mean, there are online forums for, like, quote-unquote homeschool recovery that wow. I've sort of, like, sniffed around in just out of curiosity. And some of the things that 
people are bringing up in those forums are, it's just really interesting stuff to think about. Like this one woman was saying, um, she's like, one of the things that was really hard about homeschooling was I was, I never created any memory markers. Mm. And she went on to describe this conversation that she was having with someone, um, about like you, every single day is the same and it's the same it's the same location. It's the same people. There's nothing that really stands out. And so if you have sort of a, um, like a more classical education or you go to public school or private school or whatever, like you have memories from like, Oh, remember that time in fifth grade when Jillian like slapped the cook with her tray. You know what I mean? Like there's things that stand out and, when every day is the same, like there's just nothing like that. There's, there, there are no memory markers. It's just basically 12 years of the same shit. It's like us being locked down right now during the pandemic. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And, uh, I, I think that in a way I sort of accepted that that was just, you know, I was going to be homeschooling for my entire education. My parents were never going to let me go to school, even though I really wanted to, because I wanted to see what it was like and I wanted to socialize and stuff. But I think that I sort of at some point took this turn and really sort of just came to terms with being on my own. And my mom, my mom is like, dude, when you were a kid, like I used to have to come into your room and check on you to make sure that you were still breathing (laughs) because you, you just did not need any of us. Like you were totally fine by yourself. Um, and I, I feel like I've always been that way. I can be alone for really long periods of time and not experience loneliness. Uh, cause I've, I've always got stuff to like keep myself busy and, keep my brain busy and um I think that that being okay with being alone is is something that could benefit a lot of people well I think that is something that I've realized that I've forgotten how to do since I've been you know married and in this relationship for you know I think seven years now I don't have a set time where a song comes to me it just comes and then everything stops for the next four hours exactly yep I feel that you know, and then it's like, okay, I'm closing the door. Goodbye. And then I emerge. I'm like, okay, what else is going on? You know? Yeah, absolutely. How do songs come to you normally? They, they just come to me. Um, and this is something that I'm sort of still adjusting to and getting used to because when I was drinking, basically I would go about my life and, collect experiences, do things, learn things, see things. And then, you know, at some point, like the common, the common sort of ground rules were like, I had to be home. I had to be by myself and I had to have like a whiskey or two. And at some point, like magically, my subconscious would just sort of line up all of these things, all of these thoughts um, when I was a teenager, I used to say like it, it was it felt like a muse descending. And as I've become older and more practical, <laughs> I'm like, no, that's just your subconscious being like, yo, stupid. <laughs> Check this right. out. Um, so that that has been my process since forever. I am not a disciplined writer. I do not have set times where I write. Uh, and I, I I didn't really understand how to do that like and I don't I I don't 
want to ever feel like I'm forcing a song. Like I, I think that that is just not my style, but I can also say, um, as a sober person, like getting used to writing songs is really weird. Like it's really fucking weird to write songs sober and it's not bad. Like it's not a bad weird. It's just really different. So I am still adjusting to that. And, the premise is like my process is still basically the same. Like at some point a song will come. Uh, but I find that I usually write a verse and a chorus and then I set it aside and I'm done with it for like a day or a week or a month. Right. And then at some point the other verses come in a bridge if, if there's a bridge. Um, but whereas before it was this very singular like moment that like the thing just fucking came and like I wrote everything down in like less than half an hour now it's like a little bit more contemplative it's a little bit more cerebral um my my conscious mind I think gets in the way a little bit Mm. whereas if I were drinking it wouldn't have gotten in the way so much do you remember the first song you wrote when you started being a sober writer um (sighs) I'm not sure. I've, I'm actually really happy to say I'm not sure because I've, I've been writing quite a bit. And it, that alone, like just the transition from, um, you know, being drunk and writing to being sober and writing, at, especially like there was a dry period. Uh, I was like, oh, shit. Like, did I lose it? Can I am I ever going to write a song again? And then I remembered a story that my former housemate told me where um, she had a a surgery on her brain and she did not write a song for 20 years. Wow. And I mean, she was like, yeah, I mean, after like four or five years, I was like, well, that's just never coming back. That's a part of my life that I just don't really have anymore. And then like 20 years later, she just wrote a fucking song. And there it was, I was like, okay. If I can just hang in here a little while longer, I think I will get my songwriting skills back. The uh, first record you put out was, um, what, 2013, I think, uh, Sarah Shook and the Devil, the Seven record. Um, And, you know, we all have different feelings about our early work, quote unquote, you know, if it's embarrassing or if it's, uh, you know, endearing in some way. Um, but I definitely loved the song Old Friend. Um, and your minor key country tunes are my favorite for sure. Um, there's this depth that I think happens in these minor key songs. Um, and this is kind of a twangy fable, if you will. Um, I wrote that song after, uh, Basically, those events transpired in real life. Um, It was a Sunday morning. I was with friends, and we literally got a call that uh, our friend's dad had uh, killed himself. And um, uh, it it was really heavy in in a lot of ways. and I, I just like out of respect and privacy of the privacy of the family, like I don't want to go into details on that so much. But I will say that um, this guy was a solid dude. And, um, you know, 
this was one of the summers where like all of my buddies in Chatham County, like we would all meet at my friend's house and her dad had moved in with her. And so I met, I met her dad and like, I would go over to the house to like drink with my friends and uh, play horseshoes and cornhole and stuff like that. And I'd end up hanging out with Carl on the porch and like, we would talk about movies and books and, and all kinds of stuff. And he, he had a really sharp mind. He was, he was a smart dude. And, um, it, it was very jarring. It, his losing him was very, um, it was very jarring and it was interesting too, because, uh, I mean, how many people like that late in life sort of develop this whole new circle of friends and they're all your kids' friends. You know what I mean? Like, it was it was yeah, a really amazing. unique circumstance and i the last time that i saw him he uh he was like do you remember that movie i was telling you you should watch starman and i was like yeah and he just like handed me the dvd and i was like well carl i can come over like next week sometime and we can watch it together and he was like no there's a sex scene in it i don't want to watch that with you <laughs> i was like yeah. all right dude um but yeah, he he was a really good person, and um, I'm grateful for even just the brief amount of time that that I got to spend with him. Yeah, I love that line. You know, I often wondered what I would have said to you that last time we were together yeah. if I only knew. You know, and there's so many people in our lives that um, you know we lose too soon, or uh, we didn't get to say, um, you know, what they really meant to us because we always assume they'd be around forever yep. you know and that's not how life works it was a fine Sunday morning when the light died in your eyes I heard it from the name and all your loved ones cried and all like how you're able to collect moments of sadness and introspection and bring them to us in a way that's almost like you're uh, telling us a secret. Why did you call the band Sarah Shook and the Devil when you grew up in the church? Was it a rebellion? Oh, yeah. That was absolutely just like a mischievous jab at my parents. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Hey, mom and dad, check it out. I started a band and we're, <laughs> we're called Sarah Shook and the Devil. Um, which, I mean, like to my parents' credit, they totally immediately realized that it was a joke and that it was a jab in uh-huh. their direction. And they were like, har, har, we had a kid. All right, yes. Um, yeah, that, that was 100% the motive was just a, a playful little jab at mom and dad. Were you working weird side jobs when you first started playing in the band? Uh, let's see. By the time the Disarmers were together, 
when we first started out, I was a bank teller. Um, wow. Didn't yeah. see that one coming. Yeah, man. I was a bank teller for five years. and um, It's a good stable I, job. Yeah, I joined the Church of Body Modification before I got my first tattoo. And I got my first tattoo, which was pretty small, and nobody really said anything. And then I got my next tattoo, which was pretty large. And uh, our regional manager came in the bank one day and told my supervisor that I had to, you know, wear shirts that covered my tattoo. So I just like immediately contacted our HR department. I was like, hey, this is my religion and uh, I'm being discriminated against. Um, so long story short, like nobody ever hassled me about my tattoos again. And um, <laughs> that that's my uh, that's my bank story. <laughs> the Church of Body Modification is a, is it a real church? It is. Um, and I don't. Uh, they don't necessarily have like a central religious text, but I'm looking for it right now. There is this great book that sort of sparked this interest for me. There it is, uh, called Modern Primitives, which is definitely something to check out um, if if you have any curiosity at all about body modification as a sort of uh, spiritualism or belief. How many tattoos do you have now? That's a good question. One, two. I think less than ten, but somewhere in the neighborhood of ten. You have a, a young son, right? I do. Did you start writing songs differently when you became a mom, you think? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think that that had any real bearing um, on my writing. And I, I'm always, like, really stoked when I hear a songwriter who has done like a bang up job of writing a song about their kid. Yeah. Um, and I really hope someday that I can do that and sort of give him the song he deserves. Uh, but I haven't been able to yet. So we, we shall see. Um, songwriting is so weird, man. I mean, like I, like I don't understand why I have exes that have like, 10 fucking songs and then I have exes that I just never wrote a f- single song about like yeah. it's not it's not by choice like it's not like I'm picking and choosing it's it's just weird well sometimes I feel like love songs especially can be composites of almost everyone you've ever loved you know yeah yeah that's a good point and or like shadows of former loves come in and out of the song um and you know the the newest record you have years i think you could maybe describe as a breakup album or as a um moving on album um was that record a sort of symbol of your new sense of self or or a new place that you were going in your mind yeah absolutely cuz i was about to break up with our drummer um so the timing of that was was really interesting uh we our relationship was was in a really bad place and I um just consistently was not being treated with any kind of respect or decency and I feel like when we were in the studio tracking years like that it sort of really 
brought it home for me. I was like, okay, this, this is like real. Like I need to get out of this relationship. And I've literally like written songs about this and I still haven't taken whatever steps I need to take to get the job done. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is not ideal to tour on a new album with the person that you just broke up with that like most of the songs are about. <laughs> That's some Fleetwood Mac stuff right there. <laughs> yeah, some, some no doubt, some no doubt stuff right there. <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's a messy situation, but man, it like creates this tension in the songs that you can feel coming out of the speakers. I mean, the the tone in "Good as Gold," you know, I'm afraid of losing, but I'm not afraid of losing you. You know, is it's almost like you're telling us to tell him in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And that line specifically from that song, I felt was a really good, uh, summation of the, the sentiment of that record, which was just like, it was kind of the typical biting sarcasm that was a lot more prevalent in the album sidelong, I think. But, um, but it, it, it's definitely that sort of, like, backhanded, like, well, I don't think of you like a possession because I was being treated like a possession. And I, mm. I was dealing with a lot of insecurity and jealousy on my partner's behalf at that time. Um, and then, you know, we had we had the songs that we were going to record. And, like, two weeks before we went in the studio, I was like this this isn't done like this album is not done like it's missing something and it was I was losing sleep over it I was really really anxious about it um and then two weeks before we went in the studio I wrote years and mind you I mean like we record like all of our shit in four days and it is extreme pressure and intensity we record live so if one person fucks up we have to go all the way back to the beginning of each song Um, so two weeks, you know, two weeks before we go in the studio to prepare and just with the way that people's schedules were, I think we only got two rehearsals of this song. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to work with people who are like, look, man, if you say that this needs to be on the album, we'll make it happen. Like, let's, we'll, we'll get it. Like, don't stress about it will make it so um but i mean that it is it is a scary position to be in to go to your bandmates and be like okay guys look uh not only do we have to learn this song in two weeks with two rehearsals but it's going to be the title of the album like (laughs) this is the title song guys started playing shows I called my mom like after the first thing that I booked and I I told her that I had just booked my first show and I was really excited about it and I thought that she hung up on me because there was dead silence on the other end of the phone and I was like mom are you there and she was just like wait I don't I'm very confused like you're telling me that you 
you are going to get up on a stage in front of people <laughs> and sing songs that you wrote. You are going to do this. And I was like, yeah. Right. Um, and I mean, it's been a process, man, because I am introverted and I am shy. And the first, like the whole time that my former band, Sarah Shook and the Devil, was together, I sang, um, I had a music stand that I would bring with me. And I knew all of the words. I knew all the chords. Yeah. I didn't need that shit in my face. But it was something there to look at so that I didn't have to look at the audience. And it was my crutch. Right. And at some point, I realized that I was using my music stand as a crutch and that I needed to just buckle down and like do the job. And part of the job is like stage presence and eye contact and a lot of emotion and intensity. Um, so it has not being, you know, a good performer has not come naturally to me, but I think that by the time I finally sort of found my groove and got into it, um, it became something that was that's really enjoyable for me, and I I really like being on a stage. I love I love being on a stage with my bandmates. Like that is such a special singular feeling, um, and definitely something that that I miss a lot. Yeah, and I can imagine someone like you who is a shy person by nature, you know, using alcohol as a way to make it more comfortable to be a bigger, badder version of yourself in front of people, you know? Yeah. And, you know, look, sure. a large amount of your songs are about drinking and about too much drinking, about admitting that there's too much and admitting the excess, which is, I think, there's a progression there of of you seeing it from this bird's eye view of being like, Oh shit, the train is going off the rails. You know, it's, it's a, yep. it's, you know, it's hard to listen to at times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I feel really fortunate because my partner quit drinking with me at mm. the same time on the same day. It was, it was a joint decision. Um, and it was something that we had both talked about for a long time. And I had actually done a lot of research about drinking cessation before I quit. Um, and the disarmers were on tour in Winnipeg and it was like the last night of this huge folk festival. And the people at the hotel were like, uh, we know that the hotel bar is like really expensive and we know that y'all are musicians and mm -hmm. that y'all have tons of liquor and beer in your rooms. So they just opened up the hotel lobby and there was this huge party. And like my drunken memory is telling my partner that I was going to go downstairs to this party and like whatever. And his drunken memory was that I said I was going to go to this party and then come back and that I would call him before I went to sleep. Well, that obviously didn't happen because I got wasted and I passed out. And then I woke up and th I had all these messages from him and he was like stressed out. Like, are you okay? What happened? Like, I'm literally in another country and he can't get in touch with me. Yeah. Um, and so the next morning we FaceTimed uh, before it was van time. And we just like looked at each other and we, we looked so fucking beat up and like... It was just so ridiculous. And we were like looking at each other and I'm like, we need to quit drinking and we need to like remember how we feel in this moment right now. Because literally the only reason that we had this big miscommunication is because we were drunk. 
And that's just ridiculous. Like, we have a really, really special relationship. And, like, to cause each other undue duress just because we want to drink is ridiculous. It's it's absolutely not worth it. And, well, um, well, so many people don't get to the point where they can realize and empathize with the people around them. It's yeah. It's like, well, we have to go to the next bender, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know... I imagine it can be conflicting now playing a song like fuck up <laughs> um, because, you know, that's, I think your most played song, at least what I see on the internet um, yeah. from sidelong. And, you know, it's not like it's reveling in that behavior, but it's, it's succinctly uh, in the way you so beautifully do saying, you know, I can't cry myself to sleep. So I drink myself to death. You know, it's this very old school country to the heart lyric. We were like, man, this person is not uh, fooling around when it comes to this. You know, it's yeah. it's going to kill them, possibly. Yeah. And I, I was on that road and there is absolutely no doubt in my mind about that. Like I was killing myself through through alcohol um, in in my case and in many cases, like there are people out there who are drinking themselves to death and they are using alcohol as a way to shut down their brain um, and, you know, inadvertently shut down their body eventually. Did you feel like there was something in particular you were running from when you were getting that uh, self-medicated? Yeah, um, I think that I think that like the, for me, it it was, it was myself and my past and, um, a lot of painful memories and a lot of abusive relationships that I just, I, I never had the, the tools to deal with. I didn't know, um, you know, if you're born into money and you have like mental health issues, you can get the help you need. You know, um, when you're broke as hell and you're a musician living on the road and booze is literally everywhere you go, um, like, and you don't have the money to get help from a professional. Like, it is a very easy thing to fall into, and that's why so many people fall into it. Um, And you know, it, I don't think that it should be as costly as it is to get help with mental health issues, but it is costly. Um, and if your sort of go-to is to self-medicate, whether it's through drugs or alcohol or, um, what have you, like it takes a certain present state of mind, I think, to be like, wow, this is something that I'm doing and I'm doing it because I think it's helping me, but I'm looking at it and it's clearly making things like more difficult for me. Um, So there is a sort of self-awareness, I think, that is required to like get to that point without the help of others. And like, God bless all the people out there that have interventions for their loved ones, you know what I mean?
I mean, there's there's a there's a lyric that you have in a couple of your songs that I saw connected through your work, which is, "I have a hole in my heart," and you use it both in parting words of yours and in "Heal Me" from yep. uh, Sidelong, um, and I, you know can't think that that's an accident, but you know, there, the idea that there's a, you know, something so deep that, uh, you'll need more than a lifetime to heal it, you know? Yeah. And then maybe the whiskey will do it for now, but even, you know, in that song that it's not going to heal it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, I think that there are people who struggle for their entire lives to come to terms with their existence. And I'm, I'm definitely one of those people. And, um, you know, I grew up with this sort of attitude of like, nobody ever asked me if I wanted to be born because if I, because if I had been asked if I wanted to be born, I, I would not, I would not have wanted to be born. And yet here I am. So dealing with this sort of, ongoing existential crisis um is it it can be a very overwhelming thing and you know thankfully I don't think that that's a problem that the majority of people have but I do think that if you're a person who feels that way then you know exactly what I'm talking about and you know how hard of a road that is to sort of navigate if you grow up in a place where deviating from religious text makes you uh, wrong and makes you completely of the devil in a way. Yeah. That oh, that yeah. goes deep when you're a yeah. little kid. It, it really does. And for me, it was like not just a single thing. It was like multiple fronts. And, um, you know, like I, I knew that I was bi when I was like nine. And I also knew that like that is not something that I would be able to talk to my family about that was something that I would have to keep hidden for an indefinite amount of time Mm. and also um you know my parents raised me and my two sisters in like a very fundamentalist Christian mindset like my parents literally told us that we were girls and so the only reason that we existed was to get married and have kids and to keep a house like that kind of extreme thinking um and I mean imagine being like a 10 year old girl and your parents are telling you that like your future is set for you you don't have a choice and you know, any sort of deviation from that is like a slap in the face to God or some shit. Like that is, that shit will fuck you up, man. How are your sisters doing? Uh, my sisters are great. Uh, we, you know, we all had identical upbringings and we went completely different ways in life. Uh, my older sister, um, is married and has five kids. She lives a little bit outside of Nashville and my younger sister is in the Navy and currently stationed in Virginia Beach, and I'm, you know, a single bomb living in the woods in the middle of North Carolina, you know, wondering when the hell I'm going to be able to get back on the road. <laughs> it is amazing how divergent life journeys are, you know, because, you know, when you were a little kid, you probably never imagined 
that you'd be living the life you are now. Totally. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up, when you were, when you were nine years old? Uh, when I was nine years old, um, I went through a lot of different phases and I, I remember that, uh, the the constant theme was that I was constantly picking jobs for myself that I knew my parents weren't going to support. I remember going through a phase where I really wanted to be a car mechanic. That was like the thing. Um, and then I went through a phase where I wanted to be a firefighter, um, which was also strongly discouraged because <laughs> not girly professions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was not, I think at one point, uh, I think in my in my mid teens, I I wanted to be like a a dancer, and I took some dance classes. And I think my parents sort of breathed this collective sigh of relief, like, "Oh God, okay, she's she's finally picked something that is suitable for her gender." <laughs> yeah, she's she's a lady after all. <laughs> is there a song that, when you get up on stage with your band, that you're most pumped to play or write? Before it's all shut down, what was the song that you were most excited to play each night? Um, I really liked playing sidelong, and I think that's kind of a, a you know a weird pick because it's not like this raucous, off the wall, crazy rock and roll song, right? Um, but I think that it would definitely be sidelong, and and the reason for that would be, um. That solo that Eric plays on that song, he gets so much joy from playing that solo mm. and he puts so much heart into it. And if you find videos anywhere, like on the internet or look it up on YouTube, the whole time that he is playing that solo, he is making faces at people in the audience. <laughs> and it it is a it is a beautiful performance and it it just it does my heart so good to see him like really in his element like that and just you know hot dogging your side through a lot of this from the beginning yeah yeah eric and uh phil my pedal steel player uh, both of them were in my first band and i think that was sarah shook and the devil started in 2010 so we've we've been together for for a long time and eric certainly has been um consistently by my side there have been a few times that phil has like come and gone um when he was in the devil he played lap steel and um he basically like left that band to like set aside time to teach himself pedal steel so that was like wow. sort of his his first outro he's like well i want to learn pedal steel and i can't do it if we're playing shows all the time so i'm out and then he you know of course reappeared 
But um, yeah, Eric, Eric has been with me for a long, long damn time. And do you have a new drummer now? <laughs> we do. And um, he was able to play one show with us <laughs> before... Uh, <laughs> It was fun while it lasted. Before the pandemic. Um, But Kyle Dubstat is is our new drummer. And the last show that we played uh, before things got, you know, really serious and venues started shutting down um, was at the radio room in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, So we got we did get one show in with Kyle before the shutdown. And um, he he seems like a really cool human being. And um um, I'm looking forward to playing more shows with them whenever that happens. 2023. <laughs> yeah, our, our manager posted a, a thing to us. They're like, you know, uh, we have a music festival that is booked for you guys in November in Florida. Is everyone still in? And everyone's like, nope. <laughs> Florida, you say, huh? <laughs> hmm. Did you say Florida? <laughs> that would be a hard no. That's a long way away <laughs> and not enough money. Yep. Can you remember the worst, most bizarre show that you have played and your favorite show that you've played? Oh, man. Um, oh, wait. I know exactly what the worst show we ever played was. There it is. <clears throat> um, yes. We were in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, we were playing a bar... I cannot remember the name. It was something really weird, like the Upside Down or like the Topsy Turvy or some shit. But basically this bar had been grandfathered in as far as like uh, hours were concerned. So we we somehow found ourselves on this five band fucking bill and our set was supposed to start at one in the morning. Was it a battle of the bands? No, it was not. I don't even know who the promoter was. I I have no idea. But basically, this this bar is open until six o'clock in the morning. Ooh. So everyone that was there was in one of the bands. There were like maybe one or two people that were there to like see music. So it was like the staff, <laughs> the band members, and like maybe two people. And in, in everybody the upside down. W- in yeah. Things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Upside Down Plaza, I think it was called. Um, Yes, totally. So everybody was falling down drunk, wasted. Uh, Like, I I felt sober. I was just like, what is this? Like, why are we here? I don't think we went on until like 3.30 in the morning. And um, I remember there were issues with the sound. There were issues with the back line. Like it, it was, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, our drummer at the time, to this day, swears that he was roofied. Okay. Um, I mean, it, it, it was, it was a nightmare. Um, and I don't think, I don't think many of us got even sleep that night before it was time to like get in the van and roll on to the next town. Um, yeah, the Upside Down Plaza in Birmingham, Alabama takes the cake for worst show. Um, and uh, the best show is, that is really hard to pick. Um, I would have to say that uh, my favorite show was at the Cave in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is a tiny-ass little dive bar. Um 
that's you know been around since like I think it turned 50 years old last year or the year before I used to bartend there for a couple years I fucking loved it um but I think it was shortly after Sidelong came out um and the Disarmers played there with this band Wyas who are some buds of ours and Lost Dog Street Band and um it was like uh, I think it's a 75 person capacity bar and there were like 130 people in there. I don't know where the fire marshal <laughs> was, but like it was absolutely insane. And this place is like, has a super, super low ceiling, like to the point that like playing an upright bass, you have to like have your bass angled in right. a way <laughs> that it's not like scraping the ceiling. Um, so literally like just, packed like people packed in like goddamn sardines and again like what we were talking about with that when you have like the audience and the energy that is just like right there and everybody is like right there with you the whole time like singing along word for word like it was awesome you wonder if that type of packed as a sardine can environment is even gonna be allowed to happen for years coming out of this pandemic Yeah, I know it. It's that that might be a thing of the past, you know, for for a while anyway. You know, I I appreciate the directness with which you express yourself, and um, you know, something that you've been very vocal about recently is the, you know, the current yeah. situation happening at your record label, Bloodshot, and you know, you didn't mince words on on social media for sure. Um, yeah, and for folks who are not following along with that can you maybe fill us in yeah uh basically a little over a week ago now the working staff of bloodshot sent out an email to all of the artists on the roster and basically said um heads up y'all um nan has not been calculating royalty payments correctly for a very long time And she is also trying to sell her share of the label without alerting anyone. Like, she basically is just doing this, um, trying to, I don't know, like, pawn it off on somebody else, I guess. Uh, Nan Warshaw, the co-owner. Correct. Um, And she owns 50% of the label. Um, And I think the information that I was reading is that, you know, Nan resigned in response to Lydia Loveless allegations of sexual harassment by her partner, uh, Mark Panic, yep. uh, who's a musician in Chicago. And there's just this ongoing story in a lot of music circles of bad behavior that goes on for years and then eventually comes out and there's a fallout and then this one goes even deeper, you know, affecting the financial stability of a lot of bloodshot artists. And it, it always amazes me how <laughs> no matter which generation of musicians it is, people keep getting screwed in some way. And it still happens. Like there's always a way for the business side to get away from artists. And I I I I wonder if there's a way where artists can sort of take over the ownership. I don't know how that is going to be possible, but it, it, it becomes this incompatible thing between money and art. Yeah. And, you know, how have you been able to separate those two things 
or can they not be separated? I mean, the only thing that I can come up with as like, this is what we need to be doing better because we're not doing a good job of it is that I think that there needs to be um, better checks and balances. And I think Mm -hmm. that the only way to achieve better checks and balances is to have more communication than we currently have. And unfortunately, like that is going to be one-sided because artists don't need to have meetings with their managers to be like, let me explain this lyric I just penned. But, you know, we do we do yeah. need the people on the business side to have meetings with us and explain shit. And like, I don't know. I, I just, I think that, I think that if you have a world in which there are people that will easily be taken advantage of. You will have people that gravitate towards that world for the express purpose of taking advantage of people. Right. These bands don't fucking know. Like they're, they're trusting you, man. That's the whole point is trust. I know our heads are a little in the clouds Mm -hmm. and that's just, that's why we do what we do. But I wish we could tell some of those people we couldn't trust what you say in your song, new ways to fail. The door's over there, and may I speak with perfect candor. You're welcome to walk through it anytime. take you out with uh, right before you play a song with one creative exercise so we're gonna go from the very same first line and we're gonna see how our brains diverge as songwriters and as storytellers and I'm gonna put a minute on the clock alright the first line is the falcon landed on her shoulder. Falcon landed on her shoulder. She closed her eyes and saw the moment her mother had killed her father so long ago. A knife through the heart, blood pouring down her wrist. Maybe this bird was her knife, her way out. Ooh. A little spooky there. Very spooky. I like it. All right. I got... 
The falcon landed on her shoulder, eyes black as a starless winter night. Talons crush the bone perch. It cannot tell her what it has seen. Ooh, bone perch. I like that. Which song would you like to play us out with? I think I'll do uh, maybe Good as Gold. Sweet. Well, thank you again for uh, talking with me, and I, I really appreciate your work and your lyrics and everything that you're doing right now. So well, thank keep you it up very- no matter what. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Okay, bye. All right, bye. I'm afraid of losing I'm afraid of losing you Cause I don't think you Like a thing of mine I can just up and lose I'm afraid of losing Nothing on this jukebox except the blues Baby, if you go, it's over for good And I'm as good as gone Though it won't be long Till the wrong sun comes on at the right time You're as good as gold I'm as good as gold. I'm as good as gold. I'm worn out. I'm worried. Not worried. With my troubles mine It'll be just fine In whatever world you choose Baby, if you go It's all over for good And I'm as good as gone Though it won't be long Till the wrong song comes on At the right time as good as gold You're as good as gold I'm as good as gold Oof, I needed that Thanks for sharing your songs with me, Sarah, and uh, for all the things that you shared on this conversation. I was really moved by your honesty. And uh, you can go to disarmors.com for her music. Uh, Sidelong and Years are her two newest records, and those are out on Bloodshot. Please share this music with your friends if you like it. Artists are stuck at home. They can't share their music themselves out on the road. Sarah and I usually are out touring about 150 days 
of the year. And as much as I like perfecting my recipe for shrimp fried rice like I did right before I recorded this, uh, I'd rather be sharing my music with you in the world. And guess what? We did put out some new music. My band Dust Bowl Revival put out our sing-along Beside You. We've been playing this live for a few years, and we finally did a full band version in the studio with a full choir of friends and family, and it really, really came out beautifully. So check that out on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to music. Buy it on Bandcamp. Yes, you can still buy music and support artists. It seems old school, but it's awesome. And... It's on our purple vinyl. You can find it on our merch page at dustbowlrevival.com, and you can buy it for Christmas. It's almost Halloween, so basically it's Christmas. Dolly Parton just put out her Christmas record, so let's just skip right ahead. And if you go to thebluegrasssituation.com, you can see an article that was written about Sarah Shook and how she lives what she sings. You can really feel it in her voice. If you want to be a champ and support the other podcasts on our BGS network, check out The String, where Craig talks to Elizabeth Cook this week. Also, a brand new harmonics with Beth Bears. She's from Two Broke Girls, if you didn't know. And she talks with Allison Russell of Birds of Chicago, maybe my favorite band in America. And you can check out our episode with Birds of Chicago on our Listen to Black Voices episode. And if you go to our website, theshowontheroad.com slash episodes, you can see all 75 episodes shining in their glory, including talks with Steve Earle, Richard Thompson, Dar Williams, Raylan Baxter, Gabby Moreno, Madison Cunningham, the boys in Wolfpack. So many cool conversations on there. And it's because of you that I do this. Thank you for sharing it. And if you can leave us a review on iTunes, it would mean a lot. If you're feeling friendly, you can donate to this very podcast, ZNLupitan, that's my last name, at gmail.com on PayPal. This show was written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupitan. And please stay healthy, stay creative, and we'll see you next week on the trail. Hey music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com, for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy.